Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill. Welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. And today I have an entrepreneur in the family business space. Bobby Marchanese is the owner and president of Auto Wash, a family-owned car wash business in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. They operate six express car wash sites and have 70 employees. Bobby's got the shortest bio of any person I've ever introduced on this show. And I love that because He's an entrepreneur who's been busy dealing with raising a family, building a business, and following his love of wakeboarding, surfing, hiking, traveling, and snow skiing. Bobby, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, I'm excited to be a guest. And since I've met with you the first time, I've become a big fan of yours. I've absorbed a lot of your content and picked up a couple of good tips and insights to incorporate into my own business. Uh, well, thanks so much. I appreciate the the kind words. Um, you know, you are like many an entrepreneur, um, very similar to a lot of other people. You're passionate about entrepreneurship and finance, and also health, fitness. Um, but you're also passionate about saving the environment. And so, I want to make sure we we touch upon that today as you talk about uh, your your business, because certainly. Uh, in California, car washes use a lot of water and all that water has to be reclaimed. And, you know, maybe the same thing goes on in New York, but like, don't let me forget that I want to talk about that. But I want to start first with your business story. Um, your family started the business. Tell us a little bit about like when it was started, by whom, why, how. Give us the backstory. My dad started the car wash business back in 1981. Um, I guess the entrepreneurship spirit goes further back than that. My grandfather started an auto repair, used car sales, gas station business um, back in 1969. So he kind of got the, the family business started uh, in 1981. My dad had an idea to add on a car wash behind the auto repair shop. My grandfather lent him some money. He got that started and auto wash was born 41 years ago. And he ran the car wash business all the way up until 
roughly 2008 when I took over. Leading up to 2008, I was just coming out of college, really had no intention to get into the family business, do anything with car washing. I wanted to blaze my own path, get a job on Wall Street, do something else, you know, away from the family business. Tell us a little bit about why you felt that way, because I think a lot of other entrepreneurs growing up in family businesses feel that way. And was it something about the car wash industry? It wasn't sexy. It didn't seem like a money type of, you know, a place to make a lot of money. What was it that maybe turned you off from the business initially? I grew up working in the car wash Mm. all through high school. I did enjoy it, but um, I don't know. Maybe at the time it seemed a little bit too blue collar or being from a small town. I just wanted to get out, experience something bigger. Um, As I got a little bit older, graduated from college. uh, I just think something, something changed. Maybe I realized that uh, the small town had a certain charm vibe to it that uh, I really did like. So I stuck around and an opportunity came up. My dad was kind of transitioning into retirement and selling off car washes. And in 2008, he was left with one single car wash, him and his partner. And we were kind of heading into that recession, the Great Recession of 2009. It was like the beginning of that. And it was sitting on the market. Nobody was interested in buying it. Uh, I was kind of struggling to find my path at the time. Did you go to the Wall Street thing? Did you did you did you venture into New York City and try to finance Wall Street? Because that's a grind for a lot of people. But it's a life changing event. Either you go back back to small, small town USA and get into the family business or you 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 get into the finance world and you're, you know, five years later, all of a sudden you're like a hedge fund manager or something. What? Yeah. I never gave that a shot. I attended a few career fairs and talked to some companies my senior year in college. And it just didn't seem like that was the right path for me. There was just something kind of holding me back saying that you need to be an entrepreneur. You need to give the, the business a shot. And so, yeah, I, I stayed back. I ended up buying this particular car wash for my dad and his partner. So that was that was my start. I bought one single location from them in 2008. Tell, tell us about that. How did you go about? Let's talk a second about the financing of the transaction, how you put that together. But how did you approach your dad and I guess his partner at the time that you wanted to buy it? Or did they approach you? What was the? What's the backstory on that? Yeah, they never approached me. In fact, it was kind of of a surprise to find out that that one was for sale because that was one that he had a partner with. And I, you know, I, I knew he was selling everything else off, but kind of figured they'd hang on to that one. So I was uh, actually on a, a trip to visit friends out in Utah. Had found out that that's, that had been for sale. I was talking to my dad about it and, yeah, I remember saying, hey, dad, do you think there's any shot in the world that maybe I could buy this and we could make this happen? And he said, yeah, let me talk to my partner, Mike, and I'll hmm. let you know what, what, we, what we think. How um, old were you? How old was your dad at this point? At that point, I was 23 years old. 
<laughs> okay. So um, how many employees did the business have? Maybe how many, what was the revenues or like, yeah, what, what were you buying your, what were you buying into at that point? Yeah. At the time that one location had maybe seven or eight employees. Okay. Um, I didn't even know what the revenue was okay. <laughs> when I had that conversation. Uh, as the conversation progressed and I started looking into the financials, I could see there was a bit of a downward trend for the prior five years, which was a little bit alarming. Right. Um, Why do you think that was? Or They blame that a little bit on the weather patterns. Maybe gas prices were up, so people weren't buying car washes as much. Mm. Um, but I just had this gut feeling that I could make it work and I could turn things around. It was located in a small town. We're in Canandaigua, New York. So that's where that location is. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're based out of. Uh, it's a small town of about 25 to 30,000 population. Okay. Um, but, it, but it's a good town. And I just had that gut feeling that I could make it work. Um, so him and his partner ended up doing a little bit of seller financing. So that. A that little helped. bit, a little bit or a lot of bit. Um, well, they, they financed the down payment. So. Okay. 20%. Okay. Um, they just financed about a hundred thousand dollars. And then I also had Great. an uncle that helped out a little bit with a piece of that and Great. The rest was bank financing. Great. So did you go SBA loan for bank financing? I mean, because they helped me out with the seller financing, I didn't mm -hmm. have to go SBA. Okay. Which I didn't know was a, a big deal at the time, but as we got down the road a few years and I started looking at expanding to other locations. Um, I found out that conventional financing is a lot easier mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, using equity to, to grow. Right. Of course, you get a longer amortization period. So the payments would be lower on SBA loan, making it a bit easier to finance over a longer period of time, giving you more cash flow. So, um, but you probably wouldn't, I can't imagine would have qualified as a 23 year old probably didn't have a whole lot of uh, assets to put together. It would have just been based on the, on the business and the cash flow. So, so I'm, yeah, you're, you're right on. There's no, there's no way that I would have been able to go conventional without, yeah, yeah. without the help from my dad. No, there's no way. I mean, they, so, um, so what was their, so that's great, by the way, it's a, it's a good understanding of how you got into it. And it shows to me the compassion that your dad and his partner had for helping, you know, you as a young kid, basically out. Um, and I will you, say too, his, yeah. his partner was uh, very apprehensive about I the bet. seller financing piece. I bet. And my dad reminds me all the time that, you know, Mike would call him up and say, you know, we're, we're not going to get this money back. <laughs> right. Oh um, boy. Wow. But I, I just felt that's uh, negative thinking, huh? So how did they? How did they? How did they assess you? I mean, what led them to think that you would be a good gamble? I mean, obviously your dad, you know, has known you all your life, so you got that to start with. But what, like, what were some of the characteristics that you think that you embraced? You know, they had that made it seem like it was a good, it was going to work. Yeah, I think my dad knew deep down that that I would make it work one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, his, his partner, Mike, didn't know me as well, obviously. But I, I think 
throughout the few months leading up to the closing, um, I definitely demonstrated a level of commitment that I think surprised him. So I think that showed him that I was going to commit no matter what to make this work. And the seller financing piece that was amortized over seven years. So at the end of seven years, they'd be paid off. And right. I made it a point as soon as I was able to, to start doubling up on the payments and Good for I ended you. up paying them both off in three and a half years. Good for you. Well, that accelerated uh, Mike's confidence. I'm sure. Yeah. That was a huge accomplishment. Uh, yeah. I remember the, uh, the very last payment I, I called the bank. I'm like the last payment, um, cancel that because I'm going to write the check, you know, myself handwritten. I'm going to deliver that to Mike's living room. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, so they were pretty welcoming of, of you though, to, to invite you in to, to buy the business. Cause if Mike had apprehensions, I mean, he certainly could have found another buyer on the open market um, and maybe even gotten a better price. I mean, is it, is it possible? Do you, do you think you paid a fair price? Do you think they would have gotten a better price on the open market or do you think they gave you kind of an inside price because you're a family? So it was listed on the open market with a commercial broker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly how long, maybe a few months. And with, with any business um, listing, depending on the economy and you know where everything's at, it can take a while to sell a business. Sure. So yeah, maybe if they held out a few more months, they, they could have got a little bit more money from somebody else uh, and not had to have done any seller financing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. So last question on the history here, cause it's kind of interesting, I think, and instructive for people who are looking at taking over their parents' business exactly, you know, what's the mechanism, financing mechanism, and also a little bit about what's the psychological barriers or obstacles that you have to go through. Cause there, there might be some minefields for some family members where you, you can't talk about or step on that. Like, you know, like if you were to go through the financials and start poking holes in the in the business or the business model or their marketing or their excuses around why it declined. I mean, like that could have been a landmine as a family member, but and a landmine as a outside buyer, too, but maybe even more emotionally charged uh, in a family situation. But. Um, had you not grown up in the car wash, like had you not done these years during your teenage years, do you think they would have said like, no, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe they don't, you know, but it's kind of like you had an inside understanding of how the business ran from the ground up. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot of the basic principles of just, you know, not just the car wash industry, but just general Managing people, right? Managing people, entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I think Mike saw that a little bit too, his yeah. partner. Yeah. I, I think that definitely helped. I think that had to be feathers in your cap, so to speak. So, all right, let's talk. Let's, so that's a great story, great backstory. Let's move over to the growing pain. So you take it over. Are we in 2008? Do I have the right time? Uh, yeah, 2008. And- 2000. One thing I'll add to it, which is kind of part of the financing, part of the growing pains. Um, I had roughly $30,000 in savings that I have built up mm-hmm. just doing whatever through college, buying, selling used cars, uh, mm-hmm. holding a couple different jobs, wheeling and dealing. So I, that was a lot of money for a 23 year old. Sure. Out of college. 
Um, but that all went to the closing cost. In fact, I had a used car that I also had to sell huh. to help pay off these closing costs. So the day we closed, I, I had no car, no money. I actually got a ride to work for the first couple of weeks. That's until terrible. my dad let me borrow a car. Wow. Okay. Pretty so funny, that was, right? That was a very scary start. Um, fortunately, we closed the deal in November. And in upstate New York, the winter time is the busy season for the car washes. Mm, okay. And we had a great winter. So that's you know, amazing. Was scary in the very beginning. Um, yeah. It quickly turned into a, a pretty good start. Wow. That's a good story. You know, I wouldn't know that the car wash. Uh, season in the winter would be good in upstate New York, but gets getting all the salt off your the, the undercarriage of your car. Yep, exactly. Pretty important if you want to not rust out your car. Okay, um, so now it's been fourteen years. Um, let's talk about some of the significant growing pains that you've had over those fourteen years. What what stands out as really memorable or you know really teachable moment? For you, if you were, if you're looking back on your younger self and telling your 23 year old self, okay, Bobby, you're going to go through these two or three or four things. Like, here's what they're going to look like. Here's the mindset you have to have to approach them. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The first thing I mean that comes to mind is just being 23. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess the lack of maturity that comes along with that age. Sure. Um, so yeah, just a lot of growing up, maturing, um, kind of understanding myself, figuring out myself in a leadership role. Uh, I learned a lot of lessons. Number one, micromanaging people is not necessarily a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, one mistake that I made was when I finally was ready to hire a site manager for that location, I took my best worker and put him in a leadership role, mm-hmm. um, which can work out for some people if that person also has leadership qualities, but this person didn't. And not to cut them down at all, they were a great, great worker. Uh, I just figured that, you know, the good worker would equal a good leader, but that's. I think that's called the Peter principle, if I recall correctly, where you elevate someone to an area from where they were competent to incompetent. And just because they were really good at like being, let's say, whatever, a technician, a foreman, a supervisor, uh, you know, but now they're in a managerial role. It doesn't mean that they're any good. And, and, you know, we say this about entrepreneurs a lot. I used to say, you know, sadly, just because you're a good plumber doesn't mean that you can run a plumbing business that they're so different. Right. As you know. Yeah, exactly. And at the time, uh, I didn't know either how to develop that person into a leader. Mm -hmm. So that, that was like a long three or four year lesson where, you know, I had to deal with the consequences of of my decision and eventually did it work out mistake. Yeah. Did Did he go back to being uh, what he was doing before or did you just lose, did it get, just get burned, turned out, turned up in the process and get spit out? Yeah. I I had let it go on too long Mm. to a, to a point where I felt like there was no return. So uh, we parted ways. Um, we're on good terms today, but I'm sure yeah, that was a tough lesson to learn. Yeah. And was he much older than you? I know uh, he was roughly my same age. Okay. So, all right. 
good learning lesson. What else? What other growing pains did you have that would be teachable moments? You would tell your younger self, okay, Bobby here, when this happens, do this. Yeah, I'd say maybe working on the business more Mm. as opposed to working for your business. Yeah. So So cliche, but but it is cliche, but I guess uh, scheduling time or allocating time to really take that step back, look in your business, working on a vision Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to create that vision to know where you want to go in the next five years. Yeah. As opposed to just constantly just fighting the day to day and, you know, you get six months down the road and you're really in the same spot you were six months ago. Yeah. And so what about like, I imagine in a car wash, many of your 70 employees are basically on the line, you know, line workers, whatever you call them. I don't know, but uh, um, you probably have like, what do you call them? Wash technicians, maybe. Um, yeah. The term we use is CSA customer service attendant. There you go. Up, upscale upgrade the, uh, the terminology, but you've had to develop a, a management team that you could communicate your vision to whom they in turn could um, communicate that out to their people. So was that challenging for you to, to build that, that team with you so that you weren't just, you know, shouting out a vision and shouting it out to 70 employees that were CSAs? It was a challenge for a while. Uh, it, it took me a long time to get to the six locations we're at now mm-hmm. uh, for the first seven or eight years. I only had two to three locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a chunk of that, I was kind of wearing all these different hats. Um, after seven or eight or nine years, I started to realize, okay, I need to create a very clear plan, a clear vision of what the organization needs to look like and figure out where we want to go. Um, now today it's not as difficult. Every site, we have a site manager, an assistant manager. We know our core values that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a, an area manager that oversees all six locations. That would have been you back in the day. That would have been me. I, I wore all the hats, all, it, you know, from the area manager all the way down to the CSA. Right. And then, and how did you set up the finances? Did, was that always more uh, segregated in terms of duties, like away from you, where uh, you had someone who always was maybe a good financial manager? Yeah, in the very beginning, I was attempting to do the bookkeeping. Oh boy, myself. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was rough. That lasted about a year and a half. Uh, right. I got introduced to a bookkeeper who is still with us today. Right. And she is great. That was one of the first things that I guess I outsourced or hired out. Mm. That was smart. And, you know, I don't have any clients that are cash businesses, but the car wash business, the laundromat business. I mean, I I used to know someone who owned a bunch of laundromats and he had a trunk in his car, like his entire trunk of his car was filled with coins and, uh, you know, hundreds of pounds of coins. I mean, your business is still probably a pretty cash-based business, I would imagine. Not uh, as much as it was in the beginning. I'm sure. So in, in but, 2008, it was primarily cash mm-hmm. uh, as well as coin. 
Yeah. So I, there were many days where I'd go to the bank and I literally have just big money bags of cash over $10,000 deposits where, you know, they'd have all my information on file. They'd have to fill out forms every time I go to the bank. Sure. Um, but I would imagine, you know, theft is always a concern where cash is concerned. Um, and yeah, back know, in 2008, we were operating out of a cash box, like a wooden right. single drawer cash box. Right. Challenging. Yeah, it was rough. I bet. Okay. So, um, so that's good. So, and so tell us now, what does the organization look like in terms of the structure? You've, you've, you went through the area manager, you've got the site manager, you've got an assistant like site supervisor. Um, who's inside the office? Like corp, what does corporate look like for a 70 employee car wash business? Yep. So our corporate team is myself. Who's the president. Mm-hmm. We have a marketing and communications position. Mm-hmm. We have an HR admin part-time. That's actually my mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we have the area manager who I mentioned. Right. And then we have two service technicians. And their service technicians are doing what? They repair the car washes. So. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, a motor goes down, an air dryer stops working. Right. So a lot of training needs to be done of these people unless they're old school and know all the equipment and are the type that could build the equipment themselves if they had to. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. Jacob and, and Connor, they, uh, they're both very talented. They're great. Jacob's been with us since he was in high school. So he mm. started as a CSA and he worked his way up. At one point he left um, to kind of pursue a different career path and then came back and uh yeah, he, he's a very talented service tech. There's a lot to it. I mean, it's not just like in plumbing, for example, all you need to know is plumbing. But for a car wash, you have to know plumbing, electrical, hydraulics, pneumatics. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah. You have to combine a lot of different skills. I, I work with a lot of landscapers and I understand they're combining a lot of different disciplines. Um, and I, I don't work with a lot of plumbers but I understand many of them are second, third and fourth generation businesses because they're, it's not that easy to learn plumbing. And so how you learn it is from your father who learned it from his father, who learned it from his father type of thing. Um, there aren't a lot of trade schools for it. As I imagine, there are trade schools for car wash businesses. So do you have mostly younger in folks working for you? Did like, did, yeah, it's there, a pretty young organization. I would say uh, there yeah. are not many people that are over the age of, 27, 28. Okay. Interesting. And now when your dad had the business and he was at his height and he had what I think you said, six to eight car washes, were they mostly older people at that time or was it also younger? It was more of a mix. I'd say he had more older people than than we have. I see that pretty commonly when a next generation leader, millennial takes over a family business there's a gradual weeding out of the older people and, and bringing in more younger talent. Um, and it's sometimes it's just because they're introducing new technology and new systems and the older people are not as, as, you know, comfortable with the technology. They don't understand it. They're not, you know, they're just not conversant with it. 
And then when you start introducing things like core values and other things that those older people might think this is like BS type stuff. Um, why are we like, what do we need that for? Um, so talk to me about core values in your business. How, how has it made a difference? Uh, I, I, I mean, I could go on and talk about my many clients, but I want to hear from your experience. Well, how does it, how does it live in your organization? How has it changed the nature of the people that are working for you or, yeah, so I, I read this book a few years ago um, by Patrick Lincioni. Mm-hmm. I think is how you pronounce his last name, the ideal yeah. team player. Yeah. And the three core values that he talks about in this book, hungry, humble, and smart, being people yeah. smarts. Mm-hmm. When I read that book, it was like this aha moment because I feel like those were the core values that I was trying to put words to all these years. Yeah. And yeah, once I read that book, just everything kind of made sense. And it's like, okay, these were the core values that I knew I was searching for. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some of the inflection points that you went through in your business. Um, inflection points to me are when all of a sudden the the revenues or the profits or the headcount takes like a hockey stick like turn, you know, upwards. Um, usually it either comes from maybe just having like systems in place or, you know, it's, it's something that positioned you to be able to scale. Um, was there a moment in time, uh, an event? Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you while you're thinking about it for you. Um, so there was an inflection point in one of the businesses that I ran. It was a uh, economic development firm not nonprofit business consulting, entrepreneurial training, small business financing. And uh, in 1994, the Northridge earthquake struck Los Angeles, where we were ground zero. And our agency, which was funded by city, county, state, federal, we were getting grants from, you know, we were piecing together grants from different uh, and uh, agencies to build this economic development center that was providing counseling, training, and financing to small businesses. And suddenly when the earthquake struck, like we were the only organization of its kind positioned to get money from a government agency and, and assist small businesses. And it was a huge inflection point. We went from about nine to about 27 people, like literally over a course of a few weeks, it seemed. Um, a small contract that we had working in the city of Los Angeles in, in one particular neighborhood in the in this city of Los Angeles. Suddenly, that contract went from, I think, $100,000 or um, maybe $150,000 to a million-dollar contract serving the entire San Fernando Valley, which, if you know the geography, is about, well, it's close to a million people and 65,000, I think, businesses. So it was an enormous inflection point, and it led us to then get uh, develop a, a loan program where the SBA and FEMA was falling short. We developed a, a customized loan program for businesses that weren't going to meet certain parameters of the SBA, and we brought $30 million of money um, into the Los Angeles, Southern California area. Uh, we got the, the, the bulk of it, and then it got 
doled out to other agencies like ours that we trained was a huge inflection point. And at that point, we were doing business planning, you know, internally every three to four months, we'd go off site as a team and say, what do we want our business to look like? And at that point, I recall we came up with like a vision statement. It was an entire page, one page long written pro like, like a, like a word document written, but we wanted to be a nationally recognized firm. And, and ultimately that did happen. The business built over the next, uh, uh, I want to say 25 plus years and became very successful. So, so that was an inflection point for us. It was pretty dramatic. We went from being a, probably a million dollar agency to a three, $4 million agency within a matter of a year. And we were bringing on a lot of people and started a loan program that we hadn't had. So is there any inflection point that you can think of in your business that was a huge turning point? I'm looking back on the last 14 years, I can think of four inflection points. Yeah. What were they? So the first one happened pretty early on when I purchased the car wash in 2008, we were literally hand mitting cars on the line. Mm-hmm. So a car comes in and, you know, there'd be three or four guys and we'd all be just soaked head to toe. If it was wintertime, we'd be frozen. We'd be hand mitting these cars. Um, I knew that had to change. So the, the first thing that we did once I saved up enough money was to buy this piece of equipment that would eliminate the need for that. Um, I guess what I didn't realize was, or what what I didn't realize was going to happen because we sped up the process. We were able to increase the wash volume by like almost 20% the next year. So the light bulb kind of went off. It was like, wow, we can make one change, kind of a technological change, I guess, Mm -hmm. to uh, improve the efficiency. And just like that, it can have this, huge impact on the business. Um, then the second inflection point was not too long after that because I spent all the money on this piece of equipment and we hit a slow period. So I almost went broke. Oh boy. And then, you know, I'm scrambling, trying to figure out, okay, how can we uh, improve cash flow or at least make it more consistent? And I happened to pick up a, a magazine and I read about this car wash out in the Midwest that was doing a, a monthly club membership. Mm. Now, this was back in 2009 before club memberships were a thing in the car wash industry. Right. I mean, nobody around us was doing it. I mean, really not many people at all in the country were doing the club memberships. But it just, again, another light bulb went off and I found this person that could write some software for me. I figured out how to implement it on my own. And pretty instantly, we started signing up club members. And I realized the potential of that and the benefit of this, the consistent cash flow. Love recurring revenue model businesses, right? Yep. So that was another inflection point, which led to us eventually finding a company where we could buy these automatic or automated pay stations that could further streamline this, this club membership program. Mm. And that really changed the whole business for me that eliminated theft that improved efficiency it increased revenue it um, made the revenue more consistent so i didn't have to worry about the seasonality of the business and that's when i really started to think about scaling 
because with these pay stations and the automation, it was much easier to track things. And sure. Um, so that, yeah, that was a second inflection point. I'd say the third one was when I hired our first area manager. And that person that I hired was probably one of the best hires I ever made. That person was a, just a true born leader mm-hmm. that embodied those core values that we talked about, the hungry, humble, and smart. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that position and that person, it allowed me to take that step back to focus on the business rather than working in the business. And we were able to scale even more. And that, that helped, I guess, this final fourth inflection point, which happened maybe a couple of years ago, where I really started to clarify what our vision is, what our purpose is, and establish a plan of how to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of those things that now we're at six locations and, and we're poised, I think, for uh, a good few years coming up to really grow to my ultimate goal, which is to have 10 locations in this Finger Lakes area that I live in. That's great. So, so why is that an ultimate goal for you? Part of the reason is the people that work for the company. I want mm-hmm. to be able to provide opportunity for growth and provide well-paying jobs and provide a culture that people enjoy coming to work to, that they get excited about. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned this term in one of your podcasts, a sticky culture. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we strive for. And we hear it a lot from staff that either are stuck around longer than they thought they would, or, you know, they've been here for a couple of years, they go try something else and then they come back because they just really enjoy the people here and they enjoy coming to work every day. So that that's, I guess, the why. Mm-hmm. Um, so to provide that opportunity for other people. As far as the number 10, I think part of it comes to comes down to lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a work-life balance, I guess, that I strive to maintain. And I don't want to uh, push myself too hard in the, in the business side to where I, I can't maintain you know, a, a happy marriage. And right. I want to make sure that I have time to do the things that I want to do in life and spend time with my kids. So do you have more time now with your kids? Oh, like your, that's not a fair question because your kids are three and five years old, as I recall. So uh, um, do you have more free time today than you did when you were a single operator, single owner, you know, single location operator? I'd say yes. Yeah. Um, so when I when I bought the car, the first car wash in 2008, I was single. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, I met my wife. But right after I met my wife, she went to New York City for three and a half years for grad school. Mm. And I was making visits down there one like one long weekend a month. <clears throat> and the rest of the time, I mean, I was just grinding it out at work with the company. Right. You know, working. 10, 12, sometimes 14, 16 hour days. Uh, And I was able to do that for a long time until she moved back after graduation. um, 
we didn't get married for another few years and didn't start a family until a couple of years after that. So I, I feel like I put in a lot of work in my twenties and a lot of time, which kind of laid the foundation for my work-life balance. Now <laughs> uh, I still put in about 45 to 50 hours a week as opposed to maybe 80 before. Um, <laughs> but I also have a lot more flexibility today than I did 10 years ago because we have this, this team, this organizational structure. Right. Right. So, you know, there's a book, you've probably read it. Um, it's by Robert Kiyosaki who wrote rich dad, poor dad. Um, this book is called Cash Flow quadrant, if I recall correctly. And he talks about the, the four different types of, uh, um, business owners. One is the, um, is the self-employed uh, business owner. Um, see if I recall this uh, four types. So I guess the four, maybe it was four types of people. I don't know. One was the one was an employee, as I recall. Then there was the business owner, self-employed. Then there was the business owner who had you know people running the business, and then there was the investor business owner. And so the concept being that the further you go up in the development of the business, the larger the business is the more managers that you have uh, to run the business. So, you know, while you could have a very nice, like a great and could be perfect lifestyle business with 10 locations and just be in the Finger Lakes. I mean, if you've got the right people and the right systems, um, I can't imagine that it would be that much different or difficult to scale to 20 and be in a broader geographic area. And I guess the the question is, and I, this is just a rhetorical question, um, is would you have more free time with 10 or with 20 um, or 10 or 100? You know, like, would you just be working on different things, different activities? Right? And my, my hunch is, is that if you went from 10 to 100, if you had the right people in place, you would probably just be working on different activities and, you know, you'd probably be way more involved in just developing people and looking out at the broader industry and economy. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on this. Maybe I've, maybe I'll have you thinking over the weekend about, uh, Hmm, is 10 the right number or, or, you know, is staying in the Finger Lakes the right move? So, yeah, no, I think you bring up a, a good point. And um, yeah, maybe in a couple of years after I hit 10, we'll do another podcast and my, yeah. my next goal will be a uh, hundred. Yeah. So I know I tell this story because uh, I used to have a set of slides that I would share when I would do a public workshop uh, with the scaling up uh community. And it was about uh, the founder of Subway. I think his name was Fred DeLuca. And, you know, he had different visions of what Subway, the restaurant chain was going to look like when he was in high school. And when he was in college, it was just to have one location. When he was exiting college, it was to have six locations. When it was, you know, a few years later, it was to have like a hundred. And then it was to have like, you know, a thousand or two thousand, and then and then it was just focusing on getting a certain percentage of the money in people's wallet at lunchtime. So uh, it just kept 
broadening and expanding. And, you know, obviously Subway is a phenomenally successful uh, business where, you know, so many entrepreneurs have become successful and, and rich uh, just by, you know, owning their own businesses within their business. So, you know, it's conceivable that your, your car wash business could become uh, franchised. Your systems could be so good that people will want to buy your systems and buy a franchise, or it's conceivable that you could just become a consultant to, to taking your your systems and training others in how to make make these systems work in their business. I mean, so there's a lot of different directions that you can go, and I I don't think there has to be an answer, and and I think that part of the the visioning process is is developing that vision and and te- and testing it along the way, but being flexible as as there might be a turn in the road, you know, a twist in events, just like your dad and his partner experienced a twist in events where they were like their car wash businesses were going down and suddenly they weren't interested anymore, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. And especially with the point about leaving your goals a little bit flexible or open-ended, I think it's difficult for anybody to plan out 10 or 20 years or even longer than that. Um, so this, this 10 location goal, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, might be more of a short-term goal. And then, yeah, leaving that open to kind of reevaluate and establishing another goal beyond that. There you go. Awesome. Well, hey, listen, this has been a great 45 minutes spending some time with you. I, I think that your story is going to resonate with a lot of listeners out there. And I appreciate you being on the podcast as I went through your story and I started thinking about the seven P's framework in my book, you, you touched on a lot of them, uh, purpose with the values of planning with the visioning, uh, people with having the right people and doing, you know, um, your products, meaning looking at the tech and the inflection points were undeniably a lot of technology, uh, focused inflection points. Um, uh, I'm sure your performance, meaning like your profitability is, is just gotten better every year. And so thanks for being on the show and any final words you want to share. Yeah, I just, I appreciate you having me on in the conversation. Um, I look forward to reading your book and hopefully talking more in the future. Sounds good. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. You know, the drill, if you like this show, please share it uh, with others and give us a five-star rating review, or don't give us a review at all, um, on your listening podcast app of choice. And uh, stay tuned for another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session.
Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.